Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Alright folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 180. Uh, we're going to be discussing visionary psychedelic science with Andrew Gallimore. Uh, we've had Andrew on the show before. I think it's been a while. I think the episode we did with him was number 72, if I'm not mistaken. It was a really great episode. It was when his book, uh, uh, Alien Information Theory, just came out. So I still highly recommend people read that if you are into psychedelics and DMT and stuff. And um you want to know the science side of it and what's going on with the serotonin receptors and all that. I think it's an amazing book. Um, and also, you can check us out at Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Uh, we did one earlier with Avi Loeb, who is the Harvard physicist that uh, theorized that Oumuamua was actually an extraterrestrial uh, you know, uh, offshoot or piece of something. Uh, so check that out, and we have a little bit of a science palooza today now that Andrew's on. So two episodes in one day, Absolutely. both scientists, two first for Mind Escape, which is amazing. And one more thing, go to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform that we created to connect open minds. So if you want to speculate, hypothesize, theorize, talk about all the kind of stuff that we talk about on the show and all the different topics, it's the perfect place for it. We're trying to build a community of like-minded people, so... Go check that out, and without further ado, welcome on the show, Andrew. Or should I say, welcome back? Great to be great to be here again. Beautiful. <clears throat> yeah, it's been I think almost like two years now. You were actually one of the first bigger, well-known, I think, psychedelic uh, scientists that we've had on the show. So it's good to have you back on. Yeah, I think it was it was during that kind of initial. I did a flurry of these kind of podcasts at the time, so they. I, I often struggle to differentiate between Yeah, I can't those. believe it's been two years. That's insane. So you're I saying know, you don't I, remember us. Uh, um. I remember you. Oh, like, okay. How could I not remember you? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I did quite a few at the time. So you're actually, this is the first time I've done a podcast in a few months. I've been focusing on writing and um, isolating as everyone's doing at the moment. So, um, yeah, I haven't done much in, in a way of kind of talking to the public. So, yeah, you'll be I one of the I saw you were hanging out with the, uh, the Dreaming Jaguar guys. Was that recent or was that shot uh, and then just released? That was, that was that was more than a year ago, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. that was great. I mean, we didn't hang out. We, um, they, they, record, they sent me some questions and then I recorded them with my, my, my friend. Um, on the beach in Okinawa, and then they kind of recorded their bit. So it was kind yeah. of a, a collaborative effort. But yeah, I've never met them, not yet. Yeah, they are good dudes. Uh, Paul and yeah, Justin. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Paul yeah. and Justin. Um, so yeah, so last time we had you on, we we pretty much focused on your book um, and your theory. Um, has there been any changes in your own, you know, work or theory? Like, have you altered anything, or have you changed anything, or the way you think about it, or um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm never, I'm never kind of settled, 
um, on, on what I think is going on. And I don't think anyone should be when it comes to um, things like DMT. Um, I, I think it's it's always an open question. And, and anyone who ever tells you that they, they, they've got it worked out is, um, is lying, uh, basically, because I don't think any of us really have a clue. I mean, the book that I wrote, which, of course, everyone should buy, Alien Information. Oh, you can't see it. Oh my God. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> the green screen. So I, I have gone. the link down below. His his website's down below, and you can go buy his book yeah. on his website. Yeah, I mean, the book that I that I wrote was, and people, some people kind of think of it as my my kind of my worldview, as in this is what I think is absolutely the truth about DMT, but I would never make such a grand claim. It's really, it's, it's my kind of vision. It's a, it's a vision of reality that I'm kind of putting out there and saying, Hey, you know, reality is really strange and maybe it's something like this, you know, based upon my own experiences with the molecule and other people's experiences and what I understand about the brain and how the brain constructs your reality. Um, and thinking about the fundamental structure of reality as well and kind of new ideas about information being kind of foundational. Uh, I kind of put together this, what really is, is, is a, it's, it's, it's a work of art in a sense in that um, it, it's a co coherent narrative, but it's never settled. Uh, I certainly don't think that it's, um, it's certainly not a, a gospel by any stretch of the imagination. It's just, um, me kind of trying to put together something that that, that that attempts to point towards understanding of, of what, what DMT is and how it relates to who we are and where we came from and where we might be going in the future, I think. Have you seen that new DMT Quest documentary on YouTube by any chance? I'm ashamed to say I, it's on my list of things um, to watch, yes, uh, but I haven't seen it yet, no. Okay. About it. There was something I was going to ask, uh, so related to that 2019 U of M study, um, where they found DMT like in the fluid, like spinal fluid and different parts of you know the brain fluids and stuff like that, and so they they were talking about possibly maybe all psychedelics play off of these DMT enzymes in some way or at some point, and that that's actually at the root of all of these experiences. Well, I mean, so. We know that, I mean, this is a <laughs> a contentious area in that people are always arguing about this and about what it what it means. I mean, we, we know that DMT is found in, um, is it, in the human body. It's been detected. I mean, people have been looking for DMT in bodily fluids, in blood and urine, basically, for for decades now, really. I mean, seriously, since, since the 60s, really. Uh, because originally it, there was a a kind of um, a kind of a hypothesis about psych about psych psychotic states like schizophrenia that they might be generated by the kind of the aberrant or abnormal production of um, psychedelic tryptamines inside the human body and that people who had some imbalance or abnormal expression of certain enzymes uh, in tryptophan metabolism um, would would um, would produce elevated amounts of, of psychedelic tryptamines in their brain and this would be responsible for their their psychosis i mean this i mean the idea has largely been dropped now um, simply because well schizophrenia isn't 
a DMT state. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's far different. It's far more complex and nuanced than that and, and deeper uh, in, in many sense. It has many different kind of characteristics and facets. And it's certainly not, um, you know, if you've got schizophrenia, you're not walking around in a, in a, in a DMT state all the time. Um, but, it, but again, you know, these are the, the kind of the processes that one goes through as a, as a scientist and as a psychiatrist or whatever. And, you know, these people are interested in the brain and, and in the states of consciousness and that kind of thing. These are sort of ideas that are really important. Um, most hypotheses um, are eventually discounted, but they, they all add to our understanding. Um, so yeah, so we know that, that that DMT is produced by the human. It's in the human body. It's almost certainly produced in the human brain. But what does that actually mean? Is is a completely different question. Um, people will say, uh, "Oh," uh, and again, you can trace this back to um, papers that really originate in the in, in the 1980s. Uh, and Terence McKenna kind of popularized popularized certain ideas that perhaps. DMT is responsible for the dream state or DMT is released by the pineal gland at, uh, at death and is responsible for the exit of the soul from the body. And that comes from Rick Strassman, of course, in mm -hmm. DMT, the spirit molecule. But all of this is wild speculation that is not really backed up by, uh, by any kind of um, real scientific data or evidence. So, so I think the jury is still out uh, as to what is the role, if any, um, of DMT in the human body. Just because you find DMT in the human body does not mean that it has a, an important function because DMT is produced uh, by two very, very simple enzymatic chemical reactions. Um, you start with tryptophan, which is a, an essential amino acid. And from tryptophan, you can make lots of different molecules, some of which are really important, like serotonin, for example, uh, is, is, is a tryptamine. It's 5-hydroxytryptamine. Melatonin is also a tryptamine. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it isn't surprising that you would find these kind of intermediates or, or these what are called shunt products, so molecules that are kind of um, produced in very, very small amounts, but not really of any, of any kind of significance. On the other hand, um, it's also possible that they are, they are, they do have some kind of physiological relevance. Uh, but what that is um, isn't clear. Um, more recently, people have suggested, maybe it's covered in that DMT Quest documentary, is the idea that, uh, or the observation really, that that DMT can help protect cells in a hypoxic state. Um, so when when a cell is starved of oxygen. Uh, it's, it risks dying, you know, and undergoes uh, um, this kind of oxidative stress and, um, and, and basically it starts to, to, to kind of commit cell suicide. Uh, and, and DMT might be useful in actually preventing cell death and so protect the brain specifically under conditions which oxygen levels are dropping, um, which kind of relates to the idea of uh, you know, at death uh, or close to death, um, when you know the heart function is collapsing, respiratory function is collapsing, uh, and the brain is becoming starved of oxygen, that there might be some mechanism to release large amounts of DMT into the brain uh, that would help to protect protect the brain should you be revived. Obviously, if you end up dying, then it's irrelevant. But uh, but should you survive, then elevated levels of, of DMT during those hypoxic states. 
um, might help protect, protect the brain from long-term damage. Uh, and of course, if you were in that state, you would be having a DMT experience uh, um, you know, during that period. And if you came back, um, you might uh, you might say, "Well, I had this incredible experience, you know, when I was being resuscitated uh, mm -hmm. or whatever." Um, but again, speculation. Yeah, um, there actually was a recent paper I just read about uh, DMT being used to help treat um, people that have had strokes. Have you seen that paper? Yeah, so this um, so this is kind of widely reported in the last week or so. Um, uh, the idea that, that, that DMT, because what's kind of interesting about some of these psychedelic tryptamines, including psilocybin, is that they they promote neurogenesis. Um, they they help the sort of brain cells to kind of regenerate. Uh, either to produce new brain cells or to increase the number of connections. So basically allowing the brain to kind of rewire itself. And when you have a stroke, uh, basically what happens in simple terms is that, is that areas of the brain that are starved of oxygen for extended periods of time, they, they start to die. You know, neurons start to die off. Um, so the idea is that if you can deliver DMT in a sub-psychedelic dose, so they're not talking about giving stroke patients, you know, 50 milligrams of DMT in one kind of shot, um, but rather to deliver DMT in, at a very low sub-psychedelic level, uh, and that this might help to um, either protect the brain cells or even to help them to recover and to regenerate uh, in the recovery phase. But, you know, again, this is, um, I think there's been some kind of approval for these initial kind of studies, but w whether it's um, whether it comes to fruition um, remains to be seen, but you know it just shows you, I think, that that, that the kind of the role of, of psychedelics in medicine is going to be um, revolutionary. You can obviously there's the the studies that have been going on for a few years now, looking at psychedelics as treatments for depression or anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, um, sort of the more kind of neuropsychological condition. But, you know, we might find that they have roles in, in other um, neurological conditions as well, including um, stroke or dementia, Alzheimer's, who knows? Mm. I want to ask you about another uh, article, paper that was recently released about how um, people look at scientists or psychedelic scientists differently if they've actually done psychedelics. Did you have you read that? So I've seen I've seen posts about it, yeah, um, but I haven't read the original paper. I mean, obviously, I, I probably know your take on it, but what do you think about that? Is that a is that a people problem or is that like a perception problem? Like, what do you think's going on there? Well, I think that I guess there's an illusion that scientists uh, are, are objective, or there's certainly the. Um, the belief that scientists should be objective and and if you are uh, if you've taken psychedelics and you kind of ex you had these experiences that you might in some way be um, compromised uh, in a sense um, uh, if you've got if you you know if you've got shares in a company and and you're writing papers about how amazing this company is then people are gonna you know it's conflict of interest so right. i think there's, there's there's an element of that right um 
obviously that, that maybe people who have, have taken these these molecules are compromised um, and 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 obviously there's there's also a, a general negative attitude still I mean it's it's diminishing now but there's still a negative attitude to people who who take drugs um, and and so a scientist who admits to having taken drugs whether psychedelics or otherwise might also be seen as uh, as compromised in some way and some kind of hippie or or, or 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 crackhead or whatever someone who perhaps shouldn't be listened to um but i, I obviously i would disagree with that i think there's also for many people within the kind of psychedelic community or community not really within the kind of psychedelic space psychedelic arena um there's uh, there's a suspicion of scientists that haven't taken psychedelic drugs. Um, so scientists who, who who talk about the effects of LSD in rats or, or or even in humans that have never actually experienced it, um, people think, well, you don't really know what you're talking about um, because you have you don't actually you don't have this first-hand experience of what is actually happening, and um, Certainly, with something like DMT, I mean, personally myself, I, I'm I'm always suspicious of people who say DMT it's just a it's just a hallucination. It's just the brain, you know, manufacturing these 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 hallucinations. And I was I'm all I'm always of the position that if you're going to talk about DMT, you sh you should take it because um, it's it. The only surefire convincer really is 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 to smoke it and actually see what you are dismissing. Um, because well, it's been two years since that. we had you on. We still haven't tried it. It's the only psychedelic we <laughs> ah. really haven't done. I will say I am offering up my services for future studies. If you, I do have OCD too, so that might be something that might interest somebody out there. It might help. Yeah. So yeah, I think. Um, it's easy to it's easy to dismiss things when you haven't actually experienced them. It's easy to say, "Oh, it's just a hallucination," but once you've been there, man, then it's like, okay, now maybe there is something else uh, going on here because that I cannot explain. Do you think it's also too? Uh, there's obviously a lot of people that are interested in the entities and the machine elves and you know this ex possibly some sort of metaphysical metaphysical external thing happening. Um, do you think that when somebody like I said, like some scientist who's never done psychedelics is saying, oh, that couldn't possibly be the case, that that's where the pushback on, you know, on that end of things comes in, you know, because you have it kind of the opposite of what you're saying. Like there's the people that just don't think psychedelics or drugs are helpful in any way. Obviously, those people have no idea what they're talking about in terms of, you know, this visionary progressive science. But then you have the other side of it, too, where you have some of these materialist dogmatic scientists saying you know th this and then, then there's people in the psychedelic community that are like uh put off by that yeah i mean it's 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 very difficult because on the one hand um i mean i personally i always i'm i'm kind of agnostic on these things i i try not to go in with a with um um, with a kind of definitive belief of, of to what's actually going on, and uh, and yeah, certainly it, it's easy to to say that these entities are, you know, cannot possibly exist, and um, and and then you know, uh, you know, if you're kind of orthodox scientist, you might go into psychedelics with with that assumption that these are 
these must be mere hallucination and that, that, that the role is to kind of explain them in terms of that in, in those kind of orthodox neuroscientific uh, terms. Uh, and then on the other hand, you've got on the, the other side, the other side of that spectrum, you've got the people who are talking about um, spirits, plant spirits, um, or uh, you know the Akashic records, and you get into this kind of this mysticism and occult, um, and these things they find it very very difficult to mesh with each other. And, and it's water and, and oil. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and I like I both, though. I like both. Well, I I don't like either. <laughs> <laughs> In that. Um, I mean, I respect both both viewpoints. I'm not going to question people's mystical beliefs about things. I would never dream of doing that. And, you know, di people have different worldviews. But right. it's not helpful for me uh, to go in uh, with either of those positions. I don't go in saying, okay, these the machine elves are pure cortical fabrications. They're pure fabrications of the brain. Um, nor do I go in and say that these are fire spirits from the um, from the mystical forest or something like this um i made that up but you get the idea um and so i don't think either position really helps you out once you've said okay these are spirits um from the astral plane where do you go from that you know it's all been explained we don't need evidence we don't need to research it we don't need to think about it that's what they are um, it's, it's that's a kind of it's, that's an ideology, really, that you it's a dogmatic position um, that is no more helpful. So your position and just to make this clear is that you are open minded to anything, but you're going to follow the research and the science and see, you know, based on that and based on your own theories and stuff like that. Meaning, you know, if the science led to something external or metaphysical, then you would be open to it. Some may not be, but it sounds like. Um, you're just reserved in the sense that you're going to just see where the science goes with it. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, but I, I tread a fine line, admittedly. I mean, many sign, sort of more kind of straight scientists, so to speak, would see me as being far out. Um, whereas many kind of the more mystical kind of new age, dare I say, kind of people see me as being this awful materialist reductionist who's trying to take away the magic of DMT. So I, I kind of, I don't fit into either world. Yeah, I don't think that at all. I think, <laughs> I think, I, I think you're visionary. That's why, like I said, we had two visionary, we had Avi Loeb talking, you know, from Harvard talking about extraterrestrial, you know, things out in space. And we have you talking about these crazy experiments that might link us to something else, you know, some other sort of intelligence. So I think that, well, yeah. I don't think that that's, there's anything wrong with it. I, We're I, all about thinking outside the box, pushing that envelope. Yeah, and I, I would like to point out, though, I think I'm pretty well-read in philosophy, philosophy of the mind and stuff like that. And uh, through with my OCD, I found that the more mystical the psilocybin experience is, the more it helps me. And it's the mystical side of it. It's not, it's not the compounds in general, in my opinion, because I've tried you know, different extractions and different things, and it's the, it's the all-in-one package that does it. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, if you're using psychedelics, then what's going on in the brain is if you're using psychedelics for, you know, exploring your consciousness, you know, trying to see what are the limits of your uh, your conscious experience or to to deal with some 
issue that you've got that you want to kind of bring to the surface, then how it how it works is is not really that important. But when for me, I'm I'm I like to reach out into other possibilities and and think, well, actually, we don't really know what is going on um, at all. We have we have a set of we have a kind of framework of trying to understand reality and understand the brain. Um, but we don't really know what is and isn't possible. And and that's that's the danger is 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 in ruling out certain possibilities as being impossible. That that's not possible. It's not possible that the DMT could facilitate communication with some um, other orthogonal intelligence. That's not possible. So we can forget that. I am like picking those kind of pieces up off the floor and saying, actually, I'd like to look at this a bit more mm. because, yeah, you, you know, you're doing all, all the straight scientists, so to speak, are doing all of that very important work, by the way. You know, the imperial team, you know, massive respect. They mm -hmm. are leading the world in understanding what's actually going on in the brain. And if you read any of my works, um, I'm always referring to the science. I always keep one foot very firmly in the science. Uh, but then I kind of reach with the other foot and the other hands into some really um, speculative territory whilst keeping my feet on the ground within the kind of within the science. And I think that's important. Otherwise, anything goes. Uh, you can say whatever you like. And people do. You know, people come up with some wild theories all the time. I get right. messages from people and say, you know, hey, man, can you, uh, you know, hey, dude, can, you, can, can we, <laughs> you know, can you can you chat with me? You know, I get messages from people I don't know saying, Hey, can we have a Skype man? And it's just, I want to, I've got some weird. Don't be like, start a podcast. Then get back to That's what I do. I said, you know, <laughs> you, and, and yeah, this is a general message to people. Don't message me and say, can we have a discussion about your theories? Because, you know, oh, I, we get those too. And I'm not even <laughs> a scientist. Really. I just say things on a podcast sometimes and people send me yeah. messages about that. So I can't even yeah, imagine yeah. if you wrote a book. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yes, I mean, I don't, I don't really have any much to say. I can't really say much about other people's experiences. It's, it's up to them to make sense of them. And if they have, if they've, you know, if they've got some wild theory that they want to put out there, then write a book, write a paper. Or come on to Indra's. Book. Go to Indra's web. We'll get you right. to sign up for Shameless a profile. Plug. Yeah, sign yeah. up for a profile. You can talk about whatever yeah. you want. If it's the most speculative, you know, thing regarding psychedelics or DMT, you know, let's hear it. Let's see what people say about it. We'll let the yeah, we'll let the uh, people decide. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a weird space though because we don't really know what consciousness is, right? There's speculations. There's different theories. You have like Stuart Hameroff stuff with uh, uh, Roger Penrose. You have you know other. Uh, Anil Seth, you know, you have some of these scientists doing these kind of speculate, you know, I call it speculation because I don't really see anything too sticky in terms of it actually sticking and staying there. But um, I read a paper, it was from Duke University about fMRIs and how they did this study where they had all these people come in and they recorded brain function. And I guess most people think they're like recording neuron actions and stuff like that. They don't, they just record the blood flow to certain areas of the brain. And that's what an fMRI is. And they found that the people that came back after they recorded the first function came back and like 90% of them used different parts of their brain for the same function. So they said they have to throw away all the data recording of all these fMRIs, because what does that mean? If, if, there isn't consistent, you know, 
Do you know what I'm saying? So like that's the for yeah. me when, when we talk about consciousness and like psychedelics and a- anecdotal experiences, it's like, well, what are we talking about? Because if somebody had this real experience that they believe and everything's real within that realm and they come back and it's not the same thing, like what's going on here? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it's 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 a messy area. I think with consciousness, certainly we know that it exists. It's the only thing that we know exists that we cannot deny um you can never deny you descartes famously attempted you know was able to with this kind of cartesian um skepticism was able to deny pretty much everything well everything really apart from his own his own mind right um and so that's the only thing we know that that consciousness exists and we know that it's structured we know that it contains information um because that is your experience, right? You're, you 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 live in a world what we generally refer to as the phenomenal world, uh, which is your own irrevocably subjective personal world, the only mm. world really you will ever know, um, and, and it has structure. It's full of information, um, and we know that somehow the way that this consciousness is is structured um, relates to brain activity in that that different patterns of information in the brain relate to different patterns of um, experience uh, but but what is the relationship there is it the same thing uh, is there you know are you a are you a dualist for example do you think that the brain is um, somehow interfacing with consciousness or um, some way transmitting consciousness or is it all part of the same thing is there only consciousness you know perhaps you're an idealist and you think that the brain is part of uh, of consciousness in some way and there are many ways and, and I, I, I I avoid it a little bit because it is such a, a slippery uh, and really it's a very philosophical kind of issue so I I, I avoid talking too much about consciousness and, and I think that leads some people to misunderstand my work in that I'm it that I'm neglecting consciousness or I'm, I'm ignoring consciousness um, I'm not you know if any I'm an idealist. I think that consciousness is in some way fundamental. I don't think it can be explained in terms of um, anything else. So you're uh, more ultimately. on the phenomenological end of things than me- mechanistic then, would you say? Well, I mean, I'm very mechanistic in that I understand But that. I just mean you lean towards more of the believing in, you know, what could be on the end of the phenomenology aspect of it. Like, it, like you said, it's fundamental or panpsychism or whatever you want to call it, where just consciousness is fundamental throughout the universe. Yes, I think that's 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 the direction that I would lean. You know, what I know is that what we understand um, from neuroscience uh, over the last several decades is that when that certain brain states, certain patterns of activity that are generated by the cortex um, result in or, or mapped to certain um phenomenological states so i know you know we know that when a certain part of the visual cortex is active that this the individual is going to be seeing the color red for example um or um you know that that that, that certain patterns will be associated with certain features and structures in the world how that works um you know why these patterns the way i always describe it is you know we don't really know why these patterns of information generated by the brain feel like something but they Mm. do 
you know, your world really is what your phenomenal world, the world you experience, your subjective world is what um, this these patterns of information generated by your brain feel like from your subjective perspective. Why that's the case, you know, why does um, why does a brain, you know, what's special about the information that the brain generates um, that it has the the quality of subjectivity? That's a great mystery. And there are scientists like Giulio Tononi, for example, in Wisconsin, um, who has developed uh, who something called integrated information theory, which which posits that consciousness is uh, what he, this quantity that he calls phi, which is integrated information. It's a little bit complicated, uh, but basically it's a special type of information. And when information has this certain quality of being integrated, um, it is consciousness. And so so the brain is has a, a sub, there is a subjective quality to brain activity because the brain is generating this special type of integrated um, information. And in fact, I wrote a paper called uh, restructuring consciousness, the psychedelic state from the perspective of integrated information theory, if you want to look up that, mm. where I, I think about how um, psychedelics affect information in the brain and how that relates to integrated information theory uh, and why uh, psychedelic states, um, how they kind of restructure your your phenomenal world. Yeah, and I think it's, it's an interesting discussion. You brought up Descartes and, you know, we could talk about like the dualism thing. It's, you know, all this stuff's weird. When you even dualism, there are some interesting things. Like if you go back to Leibniz or Leibniz, however you want to pronounce it, law of indiscernibles, if two, for two things to be the same, mind and body, uh, or they have to all be exactly the same, which they're not. So yeah. and when you're talking about that, we're talking about very interesting stuff. So that's why I do like the consciousness's um, uh, primary theory too for you know i don't i i go back and forth on it but i do like that as uh my current state of mind on those things um when you look at what's going on with psychedelic science um you there's a lot of like uh you know these companies these you know getting on the stock market you know there's a lot of money to be made this is kind of a, a you know maurice knows he's all into the stock market stuff Yes, um, do you think that that becomes an issue at any point or do you think that that becomes helpful? Um, it could go both ways, I think. Um, I think people are understandably concerned about, what, you know, when people come in with, with money um, uh, and are setting up companies and there are, you know, a flurry of these, these companies now. You can look at it both ways, and I, I don't think either is the correct way. One way you could say, great, uh, we've got people actually putting money in now and spending money to develop these tools for mm -hmm. use in, um, uh, you know, in, 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 in psychiatric, treating psychiatric conditions. And that's a, a wonderful thing um, because these are tools, these are medicines uh, or can be used as medicines. Uh, and we need to work out what's the best way uh, to do that. And, and that takes research it takes time it takes money so bringing the money into the into the psychedelic space is really important on the other hand um you get this kind of land grabbing i think people are concerned that that certain companies i'm not going to name any but there are a handful out there that are taking out what appear to be kind of trivial patents yeah i've um, been noticing that too even one yeah. tried to patent i think psilocybin i didn't even know if that was possible isn't that a scientific term well yeah you can't 
pattern what you can do is patent formulation so i think that what they were trying to well one one particular pattern was was a was putting psilocybin into capsules you know i mean it just yeah we, we, i mean it's hard to see how that could be patentable or seen as novel that's worthy of a patent uh, and there's also you know how you use them so i think i saw one just last week uh, was trying to patent laying on a couch with with a with the eye patches what do you call them yeah oh yeah eye, like a blindfold mask yeah sleeping yeah mask. sleeping mask and, uh, and and listening to music and that this would be a their novel approach i mean people have been doing that for you for patent decades. music that's a, no, that's, a, that's a good idea <laughs> when you're man. taking psychedelics yeah <laughs> if you're taking psychedelics in a therapeutic context with music on that they were trying to patent that and and i think people are reasonably <laughs> saying okay come on that's unbelievable you know i don't i don't <laughs> I don't have a problem if people have developed a new molecule and, and it's taken millions of dollars to develop this and test this molecule. I, I have no problem because they have to be able to make the money back somehow. Otherwise, they're not going to do the research in the first place. But once when people start to me feel like rather spurious patents, um, patenting, for example, deuterated analogs where you replace the hydrogens with um, deuterium, which is a, a heavier uh, isotope of hydrogen. Um, I, I'm slightly skeptical that this is going to have a significant effect. Yes, they might be metabolized slightly slower. They might it might have um, um, some kind of therapeutic benefit. But to be honest, I don't really see it. Um, I think the 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 duration of action of, of psilocybin is is already you know in the hours you know two right. or three hours. So I don't see why. And you can always add, you know, take more or less or uh, et cetera. So I don't yeah. really see why that that's a thing. It feels like people are just uh, trying to get patents to kind of take their bit of the space and, and essentially lock other people out. And that's a concern. I think yeah. it's like, I think it has to do with the integrity of the company. Like you were saying, like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with GW Pharma. They were like the first uh, cannabis medical company to patent the drugs for the, uh, for the seizures and they were leaders in their class and they actually had to step outside the box because people were very concerned with giving CBDs to children. Obviously we've came a long way from there. So yeah, it's all about the integrity of the company. And I mean, when you get into the stocks and stuff, when money gets involved and integrity can get shifted pretty quickly. Yeah. I think you have to strike a balance and I think these companies should be held account and people should be, you know, looking at them very, very carefully at what they're doing. But at the same time, um, there are also kind of other extremists that say, no, you should, uh, you know, you should only take psilocybin that have been, you know, or only take mushrooms that have been, you know, plucked from the, from the ground and blessed by a Mexican shaman. So I was yeah. going to actually ask, uh, about, um, that aspect of things. Well, I, to, to the point though, yeah, I, I think that the psychic, the stock market stuff's fine. I think, like you said, the problem for me comes in with start trying to patent stuff and molecules and names and things like that. Um, when you start to get into the realm of, um, you know, when they do these studies, everything's isolated. It's just psilocybin, pure psilocybin, or it's pure uh, DMT, or it's pure MDMA, or whatever the case may be. Um, how do you think about that? Because, like, what if is there enough studies going into the full entourage effect and how those help people? Because, and do you let me ask you this as a second part yeah. do you feel 
like scientists in a way owe something to psychedelic users and to uh, clandestine chemists and things like that, because these are the people that perpetuated this. When you know, after 1970, this whole thing went away, kind of. So, I mean, in, in reality, it's like people that kept this thing alive, and now scientists are able to get back in there and do this kind of research. Um, oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I mean, it is as you say, it is the underground. Well, basically, the underground. You know, until very, very recently, all of this was technically underground, and it was underneath the. Uh, the constraints of the law or outside the constraints of the law um, so so yeah without a doubt um, the for me I mean certainly with DMT the underground community is extremely important because they're the ones that are developing new ways of, 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 of taking DMT for example I mean even in, in terms of you know kind of personal use of DMT if you want to take DMT now the way that you would take DMT in 2021 is very different from the way that Terence McKenna was taking DMT uh, in the 1980s, uh, in that we now uh, understand much more efficient and cleaner ways of extracting it, um, um, the the kind of the, the natural sources for one thing. Uh, where, where you know where can you find DMT in reasonably high concentrations in the natural world? We know a lot more about that now. Um, how to extract and purify DMT. Uh, and indeed how to ingest it, you know, whether you use um, the old traditional way would be to use a, a pipe and to basically burn most of it. Right. Uh, and now people are moving on to using modified uh, you know, vapor, you know, yeah, vape rigs and, and vape pens and that kind of thing. And this is all this is all wonderful. You know, this is um, thinking about and testing, you know, experimenting on oneself um, of, of, of more effective, safer, more efficient, um, healthier ways of, of consuming this uh, this remarkable molecule, and you know, and, and it's not just the kind of extraction and, uh, and ingestion either. I mean, you, you look back to Alexander Shulkin, Sasha Shulkin, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of his work. I mean, um, PCAL, TCAL. Tikal and Tikal, there you go. So the world owes um, Shulgin an enormous debt. You know, Jacques yeah, Lemaire. Um, right. So yeah. you've got you've got these people that are that are. Uh, I mean, Shulgin in particular, manufacturing, inventing, creating these molecules that simply didn't exist um, at all. You know, brand new molecules, um, and and trying them all on himself and his and his small uh, research group. Um, and you know, assaying, you know, biological assays, determining what are the effects, um, what are the dose levels, how long do they last? You know, are they good for this or for that? Um, you know, one one can read PCAL now and realize what a, 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 an incredible kind of compendium um, of, of of brand new psychedelic molecules he's offered to the world. And yes, maybe only a handful are in wide use, but they're very, very important ones, you know, mm. MDMA, MDA, 2CB, 2CT7. Um, these are widely used now and could in the future be as important as the more as, as the natural psychedelics like you know, psilocybin or, or DMT in, in therapeutic contexts. So, so certainly everything that's been going on, even during the, the prohibition decades, which were feels like we're kind of moving towards the end of now mm-hmm. um all of this work was going on behind the scenes and and yeah um certainly any company that is getting into the has kind of stumbled on psychedelics in the last 
few years uh, certainly owes a, a large debt to that whole thriving community on the internet and off the internet uh, that's been working with these molecules for you know for decades now I mean, we actually even got into the stuff through like, you know, we're big Grateful Dead fans. And the Grateful Dead came up with their name from us, from smoking DMT. And that was in the late 60s. So, I mean, this is obviously <laughs> and they had Osley uh-huh. and uh, all these amazing chemists and other people that were aware of all these compounds and stuff around them. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we were reading Irwid in like the late 90s in high school like oh what, what about this one you know what about that one you yeah, know and uh right when that thing was getting going yeah and then we were kind of the weirdos back then nobody was really talking I mean, there wasn't any internet you know we knew a handful of people that were kind of into this stuff and it's just it was always this counterculture thing in a, in a way um when you look at uh, this is what i wanted to discuss actually we were going back and forth you posted something about uh salvinorum b methoxy ether and this extended yeah. uh, Salvinorin or Salvia trip. Uh, why don't you, can you give us like a little bit of, not maybe like paint a picture, but just give us an idea of what that experience might entail. Yeah, so so everyone, well, most people are aware of, uh, of, of Salvia, of course, Salvia divinorum. So Salvia divinorum, this, this Mexican herb, um, what was actually a very rare, until recently, was a very rare Mexican herb that only grew uh, in these these isolated ma- mountains in southern Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I think Walhalta is where, maybe if I'm mistaken, I think it's so, Walta. What was that? I said I think it's Walta or near where Maria Sabina, that whole region. Right. I think that's where it's really only found in the mountain regions over there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, 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 Salvia divinorum was kind of discovered by the West by uh, Gordon Wasson, who is a huge figure mm-hmm. uh, in the kind of ethnobotany um, field. Um, he first tried it and didn't really get much of an effect from it. He had to kind of chew down um, a couple of dozen of these these large leaves, very, very bitter and astringent. And he saw some mild effects, geometric shapes, uh, but he wasn't particularly impressed. And he, he uh, if you read his original paper, he says, you know, perhaps um, a higher dose would elicit some stronger effects. And of course, uh, a, a couple of decades uh, after that, um, when Salvinorin was actually isolated um, and was originally taken, the isolated molecule, the active constituent Salvinorin, Salvinorin A was the first one, um, was taken by a, uh, an independent researcher called Daniel Siebert, uh, who's still around. And he, he, he extracted a very kind of crude extract that turned out to be about 80% uh, pure salvinorin A, uh, mm. and he did he did a bit of a Hoffman, um, and he said, okay, I'm just going to take a small amount, <laughs> um, and he took um, I think it was like like two or three milligrams, which turned out to be you know a cup, like two solid milligrams of salvinorin A, which is a very powerful dose, uh, and he uh, it it literally tore his reality apart, and um, you know the very first thing. Uh, he said he wrote down in big capital letters when he came back was that you know this is you know absolute what what did he say um is that the guy from hamilton's pharmacopoeia when he did the episode on it he went to some guy's house who just by chance extracted this thing i think i don't know in like the 80s it or could something. be 
It could be, yeah. He wrote, it is total madness tearing apart the fabric of reality. Um, so this was um, 1993. Mm. Um, so, so then, you know, he, he was obviously uh, psychologically and ontologically shattered to his very core. Mm. Uh, but he was also obviously de- delighted that he had discovered this molecule. Um, and, and, and then, of course, the, the scientists came in and, and, and started to try and work out what actually was going on with this molecule. Because salvanorin is, is an entirely unexpected psychedelic, in, both in terms of its structure and its, um, the way that it works in the brain. So the, the other kind of what we call the classic psychedelic, so psilocybin, DMT, LSD, mescaline. Um, these, are, these are all alkaloids, which are naturally occurring nitrogen-based molecules or nitrogen-containing carbon-based molecules that are actually built from amino acids inside the plant. Whereas salvanorin belongs to a completely different class of molecules called the terpenes, mm. and, uh, which are made by a completely different mechanism. So then, then, then if, you know, if you were looking, um, if you were analyzing plants to look to try and find psychedelic molecules, you wouldn't be looking for salvanorin. Um, it's, it's a completely different chemical class. So that's the first thing that's kind of um, surprising about salvanorin when it was first discovered. Secondly, is its mechanism of action. Um, the other, the classic psychedelics, uh, as many people will know, um, they, are, they, they bind and activate a particular subtype of serotonin receptor in the brain which is responsible for uh, the psychedelic effects uh, whereas salvanorin does not it's it kappa actually, opioid right exactly so it binds to this unusual now most people know the opioids uh, obviously like the opium poppy for example morphine is, a, is an opiate right. um, and it binds to a different class of opioid receptor uh, that are completely unrelated to the kappa opioid. Um, and so the kappa opioid receptor um, is activated by salvanorin. Um, and and uh, in a, you know, in a, and, and so the, the mechanism by which salvanorin has its psychedelic effects is, is completely different uh, to the, the classic psychedelics. Um, salvanorin or the kappa opioid receptors are found in a very, quite a small, uh, or they have a very, very high concentration in a very small area of, 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 the, of the cortex or underneath the cortex called, called the colostrum, which is, um, well, the colostrum is, it's the most heavily interconnected with the cortex part of the brain. So it's very small, but it connects very, very, um, uh, very densely to all areas of, of the mm. cortex, which is the outer layer of the brain, which is kind of responsible for for constructing your your world model we're, the kind of we're getting a little buzz here i don't know what that is Eric, it's gone is that you maurice no better not be okay <laughs> yeah i think we're good now sorry yeah so so the colostrum the small area of the brain heavily interconnected with the cortex and its role is it's still i mean you can go to conferences they still have conferences you know understanding the colostrum um so it's despite being a, a very small area of, uh, structure within the brain or relatively small anyway um it's it's function it's true function or it's all of its functions are not fully understood it's still an active area of research but what what it seems to do is it seems to have um kind of two broad effects 
effect. One thing that it does is it has this broad inhibitory effect on the cortex. So it, it's like a global inhibitor. It, it, it holds back the activity of all of the, the neurons in the cortex and basically stops them getting kind of overactive. Uh, it also controls, um, it also kind of controls the kind of the signal to noise ratio of the cortex. So, so your, the world that you experience is basically is a model. It's a model of the environment that your brain constructs. Um, and, and your brain basically moves from state to state as it's kind of building uh, the world that you experience. And so your experience of uh, the world around you is this dynamic movement of your cortex from state to state over time. And that is kind of controlled to a large extent, uh, or partially at least, by the colostrum. So what the colostrum is doing is it's trying to find um, the, the signal patterns of activity, the kind of these synchronized and coherent patterns of activity, which represent your kind of world model. And it amplifies those. And then it also looks for noisy and unsynchronized patterns or weak patterns of activity, and it suppresses them. So it acts to kind of increase the signal noise ratio. It also uh, um, controls the, the movement of the brain from state to state. So your, your brain has to not only represent the structure of your world, but it also has to be able to move. Um, you know, obviously your world is dynamic. The, everything's are going on in the environment all the time. So your brain must be able to move from state to state, sort of glide, if you like, from state to state. And, and the, the colostrum seems to help in that regard and that it kind of shuts down one state and allows another state to, uh, it's like a, a peaceful transference of power, which is a term that you Americans will be um, <laughs> uh, familiar with in recent times, right? So that's the idea. The colostrum is, it, it's orchestrating. It's, people often describe the colostrum as, a, as an orchestrator of the cortex. It's like, um, like, like the orchestra of, of, a, um, of an, an orchestra, the conductor of an orchestra mm. uh, is, is, is the way you'd kind of think about it. And it's controlling the, the level of activity, but it's also controlling the structure of the activity and the way that this activity flows through time. Um, and so what these kappa opioid receptors do, getting back to salvinorin, um, is that they, they, they shut down the colostrum. They're inhibitory. So when salvinorin gets into your brain, it binds to these kappa opioid receptors in your colostrum and basically it shuts off the colostrum or, or shuts it down to some extent, quietens the activity of the colostrum. And so the colostrum basically loses control of the cortex. It's no longer controlling the level of activity. So the, the, so the, the, you get this global, it's called disinhibition of cortical activity. So all the neurons become more active. And at the same time, um, the cortex loses its, uh, it, it, its conductor from state to state. So, so, so it's, it's kind of like, imagine you've got an orchestra and it's being conducted and they're playing some very complex symphony, you know, some Shostakovich number. Um, and imagine you go up to the conductor whilst th this piece is in mid-flow, this symphony, and you, you put a gun to the conductor's head and say, OK, I want you to make them play the piece faster and faster. And then you shoot the conductor in the head. Sounds right? like Phil That's... Spector or something. <laughs> right. You know, you can imagine, you know, you force this conductor, these, this orchestra to play faster and faster, and then you get rid of the conductor. Um, and then you can imagine what happens. And so mm. you've got this, it's like a two-pronged effect. 
you're increasing the activity of the cortex uh, by releasing that control that the colostrum has and also um, removing that, that, that movement, that, that controlled movement from state to state. And so you're basically releasing the cortex in a way and allowing entirely new emergent patterns of activity um, to, to emerge. Uh, and for reasons that we don't really understand, when you when the cortex loses that um, that control, when you release the cortex from that claustral um, control, uh, you get these very very strange patterns of activity uh, that emerge, and these are experienced as these bizarre, extremely bizarre kind of reality shattering um, salvia worlds when your reality is literally torn apart and you're kind of uh, you kind of twisted through this extremely bizarre and strange and ever-changing um, uh, reality space. And, and, and that's why I think Salvinorin is so potent, is because it is, um, it's not like the classic psychedelics, which are kind of, they work in, in one primary way, which is to stimulate mm. um, certain neurons, certain nerve uh, brain cells, basically, and, and increasing the activity. Whereas Salvinorin is kind of releasing the cortex and allowing uh, the cortex to kind of do its own thing without any any constraints. Uh, and so that completely, yeah. you know, your, 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 ent your entire reality basically falls apart uh, and, 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 and reconfigures and, and contorts and uh, into some very, very strange um, shapes and, and, and places, um, which is um, uh, remarkable. <laughs> Yeah, I've uh, smoked it when I was uh, a lot younger and uh, probably a handful of times. I think it was like 32X. Um, and, yeah, it, it's it's definitely it out there. All right. You better be sitting down and you better have some, uh, you better have two minutes of pure nonsense on your hand. Of your life. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, precisely. And, and this brings us back to your original um, question. Have you frozen there, Mike? I've frozen. Looks like he's uh <laughs> I thought he was All right folks, sorry we got cut out there, but we're back. Um Andrew was just about to explain the Salvinorum B methoxy ether experience to it. You know, let's let's get in here. Yeah. So so Salvinorin A, which is the first Salvinorin to be discovered, and this extremely potent um molecule, as I said, it binds to this kappa opioid receptor, and that's really that's what responsible for its activity um, and for its effects. But uh, fortunately, you know, it seems it's, it's almost as if nature, um, you know, kind of understands the, the power of these molecules. You know, DMT, for example, only lasts for a few minutes. Um, and it's and you can you, you can hardly imagine it lasting any longer, whereas psilocybin, which is more manageable, Last for hours, and it's, it's almost as if it's it's programmed into it. And and Salva uh, Salvanorin also, whilst being completely reality shattering, uh, generally only lasts for a few minutes. You know, mercifully for most people. Um, but this didn't doesn't stop pharmacologists, the medicinal chemists, trying to modify the molecule. Um, so if you've got you know a molecule works or psychedelic molecules work by they bind to the receptor and, and their structure determines how how they bind to the receptor and how they activate the receptor uh, and and how long they stay on the receptor so how, how sticky are they 
What is their affinity? How strongly do they bind to the receptor and how long do they stay there? So LSD, for example, um, binds to the 5-HT2A receptor very, very strongly and kind of is that the longest one? Uh, from my experience, yes, it seems like it's the exactly. longest. Exactly. So, yeah. so LSD is kind of fascinating, but it, it, it sits in the receptor and it actually distorts the receptor and kind of pulls a part of the receptor over itself. They call it a, a lid. I mean, it's it's not really a lid, but just a part of the, the receptor protein that kind of folds over sure. and, and locks that LSD into the pocket, and so it, it it doesn't come out and it's completely inaccessible to uh, metabolic enzymes. So that's why. Uh, LSD is so potent and lasts for you know eight to twelve hours or so, depending on dose. Um, but uh, salvanorin, when it binds to the kappa opioid receptor, doesn't stick around that long, fortunately, which is why the the effects are extremely powerful, but only last for a few minutes. Um, but what you can often do with molecules, once you understand to some degree how they're binding to the receptor, you know, what are the interactions between the molecule and the receptor uh, that are important, that allow it to stick in the receptor and cause this particular activation change in the receptor? Um, once you understand that, you can attempt to actually modify that molecule and say, okay, maybe if we add a, a particular group, a particular chemical group to the molecule, we can make it stick more. Um, and uh, and these are analogs. These are semi-synthetic analogs of, of, of salvanorin. And, and there's one in particular called, as you said, um, methoxymethyl salvanorin B, which is basically salvanorin B um, that has this extra group attached to it. And, and what this it turns out that when you add this particular group, this methoxymethyl group to it, it causes the salvanorin B to stick to bind much more strongly to the receptor and to stay there for longer. Uh, and this increases the potency, first of all, of salvanorin B. So it's, it, it's about three times more potent. In other words, you need three times less of the molecule. So instead of you know a couple of milligrams, you need less than a milligram. Um, so dosage is, is obviously different. But also, because it sticks on the receptor for longer, it lasts, instead of lasting you know a, a few minutes, it lasts for two, two to three hours. Um, which for me just sounds like a, a horrendous idea um, uh, to be held within the, sal the salvia space with that level of reality destruction um, for any longer than two or three minutes to me is, is outrageous. Uh, and I guess it's, it's a good example of just because you, you can do it uh, doesn't mean <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and that definitely applies here as far you know it's it's a good example of uh, pharmacoengineering of medicinal chemistry where you can you can demonstrate that you can that you understand what's going on with this molecule at the receptor level such that you can actually modulate its affinity and the way that it binds the receptor but that doesn't mean that it should be used in humans um, and and generally you know trip reports with this salvanorin B analog, this methoxymethyl salvanoin B, are, are scant. I think I've only read one uh, online that somebody had published, and it, it sounds horrific. Um, um, and it lasted three hours, and they were taken. They, they experienced a, a whole other life in some city that they'd never been to, you know, through, like literally from, from childhood onwards. Mm. Um, so they, they, they completely... Uh, well, they weren't just taken to another world as such. They were actually taken to a completely other um, existence and a completely other life. Um, 
Uh, and then they kind of snapped back and realized that three hours had gone. Um, and, and you can imagine that this is um, perhaps quite difficult to integrate. And I, I guess when you, when you, when, when you ingest a psychedelic molecule, you are, you are playing with this very delicate, tightly organized system that is the brain. And you need to be respectful and be careful of what you're doing. I mean, psychedelics are very safe. Uh, largely, um, but um, there is the the potential for kind of s psychedelic disintegration and, um, and for some ontologically shattering experiences that might be difficult to deal with. So I don't recommend anyone tries to source this methoxymethylsalvanoin B. I just think it's too much for any sane human being or any human being that wants to remain sane. Yeah. All good advice, I think. And uh, yeah, so just to point out, most like traditional psychedelics play off the 5-HT2A receptors, salvia, kappa opioid. I just recently read a paper, um, I think it was a study done by Roland Griffiths and maybe Matthew Johnson, where they were talking about um, how the, the default mode network might not be associated with you know psychedelics like they once thought since the kappa opioid receptor the kappa opioid had this dramatic effect in the study they did with salvia so what do you think about that well i mean there have been there's a, actually a recent study with salvia um that it wasn't i think it was an fmri study it might be an eeg i think it was an fmri study uh, we actually actually observed this this destruction or not destruction uh, this kind of um, dismantling or disintegration of, of, of the default mode network with salvia as well. So, I mean, so when we think again, go back to what I was saying about the role of the plostrum in organizing uh, and controlling cortical activity, um, the, you know, the default mode network is a set of cortical areas. It's a set of um, areas in the cortex that, that tend to be active under certain conditions, you know, in the resting state when you're in a, perhaps a closed eye state, when you're, you're not really focused on any particular task or activity in the outside world, uh, but, are, you know, perhaps daydreaming or reminiscing or thinking about who you might marry or that kind of thing. This is when the default mode network is, um, um, tends to be most active. Um, so it doesn't surprise me when you release control of, uh, of of the colostrum on the cortex that you will actually affect not just the kind of the, the structure of the your uh, of your world, but also the 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 facilities controlled by the DMA, uh, the, the default mode network, you know, including the sense of self as well. Mm. I mean, it's thought that the DMN is is very important for kind of dis delineating the the self versus the environment you know maintaining the sense of an agent acting within a world um you know there's me thinking about myself and the things going on in my head and then there's there's everything going on in the environment now of course they are both both of these models if you like you can imagine it like you've got a world model a model of the outside world, which you navigate and you, you perform actions within. Uh, and then you've got this kind of self model, which is your the model of, of, your, of yourself interacting with that environment. They're mm -hmm. both built by the brain, but they're kind of, they're kept separate. They're differentiated. 
Uh, and that helps you maintain a sense of ego, a sense of someone who is distinct from the environment. And what psychedelics do, and certainly high doses of, of, of LSD and psilocybin, is, is by they, this differentiation between these, these networks that control different parts of this self-world model tend to blur, and you, you get the, kind of a blurring of the boundaries between the self and, and, and the outside world. And this is when you get these um, ego death at high doses and or oceanic boundlessness, a sense of merging and becoming one with all of reality. Um, that likely happens when this, the default mode network is disrupted along with um, the world model. And so the brain loses that differentiation between the self and the world. Mm. And, and so, so it, yeah, and so with salvia, you're, you're seeing that to an extreme level where you actually, people will often, particularly with high doses of, of salvinorin, will not only lose their sense of self, but will lose any memory of, um, of ever being a human or ever being anything. And, and there's a sign of horrifying, uh, what I've described as like an existential absoluteness of the salvia space, in that once when you're in there, it's the only reality that has ever existed or could ever exist mm. um and there's a uh, it's an extremely compelling undeniable uh, feeling that this is the not only the true reality but the only ev reality that has ever existed and that your entire life as a human being uh, is some kind of sideshow um, and, uh, you know, a show that just ended, basically. Mm. Um, so that's why I think salvia is not something to be played with, certainly at the higher doses, uh, because it is it, it will cause um, this sense of what's often called ontological shock, uh, where your entire concept of reality is completely, you know, all of your ontological foundations of what is and isn't true and who and who you are and aren't are completely torn apart and you're left completely uh you know you lose all moorings with 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 your normal waking reality and are thrust into this this completely alien space um, uh, from which there is no escape for eternity you know that's mm. the the sense here uh, and you can understand that that could be horrifying to say, the, to say the least. Um, so, so yeah, it's not, you know, I kind of, I, I wince a little bit when you, you don't see him so much anymore, but these YouTube videos, like, uh, you know, these huge fucking bombs, like, a hundred times, man. You gotta get those hits, man. Yeah, you gotta yeah. Get those hits. yeah there's a guy, uh, Hamilton on Hamilton's Pharmacopia, interviewed that famous YouTube guy that kept, he's like, now it's time to do some gardening. And he pulls out a bong and smokes it, and he doesn't do any gardening. He just sits there tripping out. Um, but yeah, and then you have those scary videos with people like jumping through windows and, and yeah, off yeah. the couch. And so, yeah, I mean, there is crazy stuff out there. I will say that when I did it, very repeaty, very fractally. Um, not just in the visual sense, but in like almost like robot world in, in a way. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, yeah, like you better be sitting down in a very controlled environment too, because you know things could get crazy. Um, yeah, that's not yeah, one that yeah, I yeah. usually recommend <laughs> to people. Um, but uh, so looking at the this uh, Salvia experience, um, I've also been looking into other alkaloids. Obviously, you have uh, phenethylamines, you have tropanes, you have all these different, you know, subgroups. Do you think that, why do you think tropanes 
are not enjoyable when you look at like trip reports or people's personal experiences with Datura or stuff like that? Like, why do you think it's, it's one of those where it's like people don't really have that much good stuff to say about it? Yeah, I mean, so tropanes, uh, they have, a, again, they have a completely different mechanism of action to the, the classic psychedelics. Most people don't are, are uncomfortable even calling tropanes. So when we talk about tropanes, what we're talking about are scopolamine is the main mm-hmm. one, or hyacine, it's also called, uh, atropine, um, and they occur in what often referred to as the old world psychedelic. So mandrake, um, um, well, this is the deadly nightshade, atropa belladonna, hmm. uh, as well as in n- sort of new world plants like uh, detura uh, or brugmansia. So these are uh, these are plants that contain these these alkaloids called tropanes, uh, scopolamine uh, being the main kind of psychoactive one. Uh, the problem with the tropanes, first of all, aside from their psychological effects, is that they they have other physiological effects. So they affect the heart and they affect the respiratory system. And so they're dangerous. They can, they can, unlike um, psilocybin, for example, you can take too much psilocybin, you might have a, a wild experience. Yeah, but it's rated as one of the safest ones on that chart, right? Exactly, yeah. right. But it's not going to harm you physiologically almost certainly not um you might have a heart attack or a stroke or something if you know if it becomes psychological yeah yeah but but it's not it's not uh, you know it's not inherently harmful the tropanes are different so first of all there's a there's a dangerous there's an actual physical risk with them that's the first thing but in terms of their psychological effects uh, they're often called deliriums uh in that they 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 turn you temporarily insane uh, one could say, and they, they tend to elicit what are often called true hallucinations, right? Remember the Terence McKenna book, True mm-hmm. Hallucinations? Sure. Um, um, so that term, true hallucinations, so when people think about hallucinations um, with respect to the classic psychedelics, so LSD or whatever, they're, they're, they're really talking about what I would prefer to call open eye or closed eye visuals. So these are um, changes in your perception that are easily identifiable uh, as changes in your perception. So usually you, of stuff that's already there though, like, like the floor, like the hardwood floor, you can see more lines or the carpet looks fluffier or the walls right. moving patterns kind of a thing. Exactly. Yep. So you yeah. get these, these, these changes in the structure and dynamics of, of the world. Um, and sometimes objects will change into other objects. So you might, so in Sasha Shulgin's book, uh, Pical, he describes a masculine experience where he's he's looking at the driveway and all these pebbles and they turn into this bed of gleaming jewels and then it starts to move and it becomes the the back of this this huge um, serpent like a mm. huge snake um, so you get changes in in but but clearly um, you 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 generally maintain insight. Uh, into you, you realize that you're under the influence of a drug and you realize that these are not normal experiences. Now, with the tropanes, they are a different beast. What they tend to do is they, they tend to elicit, as I said, what are called true hallucinations, which are generally hallucinations that are indistinguishable from the environment. So, for example, uh, you walk into the kitchen and your, your two friends you haven't seen in a while are are sat there and you, you have start having a conversation with them and you you make them some tea and you cook some food for them and then you turn around and they're, they're not there 
and they never were there. Um, and people will, and, and this can happen for a, an extended period of time. Uh, you, you can, you know, you might find yourself in an airport, you know, complete with with bustling crowds and things, uh, and be perfectly convinced that that's where you are, and, and forget that you've ever taken a drug. And then you turn your head and you're you're back back in the room. You have a, a moment of of of, of clarity, uh, and then it all starts again. Um, and, and and one of the most common things is what are called phantom cigarettes, uh, which is a very common experience where people will smoke an invisible cigarette uh, for for a long period of time. And, and tropanes? And on tropanes. Oh. Uh, and, and then they notice the cigarette isn't there and they, they scramble around on the floor looking for it because they think they've dropped it and they're going to set the house on fire. Um, that's how convinced they are. And um, and this is this can... You can imagine when you lose insight into your into the hallucinations, when the hallucinations seem absolutely real, indistinguishable from your normal waking world, but are completely different. You can understand that um, it's like being in a waking dream, uh, uh, certainly at kind of moderate doses. Uh, in the you know in your waking dream, you, you're kind of normally in most dreams anyway, you're kind of in the normal world, but things are happening, of course. But your your muscles, of course, are um, are suppressed. You you don't act out your dreams unless you right. have some very rare neurological conditions. But you can imagine if you were in a dream and your muscles weren't um, weren't inhibited and you started acting out, how dangerous that would be. Um, and you can and, and this kind of thing can happen with the tropanes, is where you find yourself in this. Um, completely, a uh, complete, what is really a complete fantasy world, um, but is completely indistinguishable from reality, and you can act it out. Uh, and anyone who's trying to kind of help you or aid you or stop you will often be met with uh, resistance, so to speak. And people can become outright violent uh, in the tropane state because they're completely convinced that what they're doing makes perfect sense. You know, they're trying to escape that fucking tiger um that's that's cut running into uh the house and do they know the so what's the mechanism then that in the brain do you do they know do they know what's going on and why that's yeah. so different yeah so so this is so basically in simple terms your so as i said before your your world is a, is a model of the environment um it's a, it's your brain's kind of best guess about what's going on out there your brain builds this uh, this subjective reality, this simulational space in a way um, that allows you to navigate and make sense of and perform actions, you know, run away from predators, chase prey, chase mates, whatever, um, in the environment. But your brain never really has access to the environment. It's kind of it, it never direct access. It, it relies upon noisy patterns of sensory information to kind of to um, kind of inform its model but the, the your actual the world you experience your phenomenal world is always this model uh, but it's always being kind of tested against sensory information so you have this model your brain is receipt your, your brain is basically using the model that you're experiencing to try and predict the patterns of sensory information uh, that it is uh, that is it is going to receive in the next moment and that is how your brain kind of tests its model is by saying can i if you know if if I think this is happening, this should happen next. And my, if my model is working, mm -hmm. uh, and so there's there's always this balance between the brain trusting its model, if the brain thinks it understands what's going on out there, um, 
then it can trust its model. But it always needs to test it against sensor information. But it needs to strike a balance between trusting its model and trusting sensory information. Um, so if you're, for example, if you're under, let's say, low light conditions, if you're walking down a, a dark alley at night, you might, your, your brain could um, turn any play of light or shadows into some horrific uh, predator that's going to kill you, some night stalker or something. Right. Uh, but it doesn't. It realizes that actually in low light conditions, the sensory information isn't that good. So I can rely more on, on the model uh, that I've got. And actually, it's, you know, it's, the model is probably perfectly okay. Um, and it's probably a completely empty dark alley. Uh, and, and this is just plays of light and shadows. So your brain was always trying to strike that balance between trusting its, its model and trusting the sensory information. And, and what's, what your brain is able to do is depending on the conditions, it's able to kind of turn up or down the level of sensory information it's receiving. If it thinks the sensory information is crap, nonsense, it's not very good, unreliable, it can kind of, it can kind of uh, turn the volume down, if you like, on sensory information and rely more on its model. You don't notice that, by the way. That's just something the brain is doing all the time. What the tropanes do uh, is they, they bind to a type of acetylcholine receptor called the muscarin uh, one receptor or the M1 receptor. And what that does is it shuts down, it, it, it blocks that receptor and, and it mimics a state um, where the brain, it mimics the kind of state where the brain feels like it can't trust any sensory information. So it has to rely 100% on its model. So even though you can, you're still kind of, you can still see the world around you, your brain doesn't trust anything. Uh, or, or trust very, very little of the actual information going into your brain. So if you, if you think for a moment, you get the idea that you've just lit a cigarette, your brain creates the experience mm -hmm. of you, you know, that's that incorporates that cigarette into your world model. Now, normally, of course, if you thought, have I just lit in a cigarette? No, I haven't lit a cigarette. I don't have a cigarette because your brain is relying on the sensory information. There's no cigarette in between my fingers. You know, I don't feel it. I've seen um, so drunk very, people do that, a, you know, a few times as well. Right. Yeah. So, yes, so, so normally your brain knows very quickly whether something is wrong, whether some kind of idea um, or some kind of um, uh, some version of its model is, is incorrect because it uses sensory information to sort of say, ah, the model is not correct. Right. There's no cigarette. But in the tropane state, that because the sensory information is, is essentially blocked off, um, by, um, the, by the tropane alkaloids, uh, scopolamine or whatever, um, these ideas can become ingrained. They, they become part of your world model and your, and your brain never corrects them. So you, you have the idea that you've lit a cigarette, that, that cigarette becomes part of your world model and it's never corrected. And so you can go on smoking um, this phantom cigarette, which is completely there for you. That's mm. the, the pertinent point. The cigarette is there in your world. It's just not there to anybody else looking at you. You're smoking a cigarette. You can see the cigarette. You can see the smoke coming out, everything that you would expect. Imagine you were smoking in a dream. Um, you know, that's what it would be like. But you're not in a dream. Uh, and so and so what it takes is for a moment of focused attention and the brain temporarily can kind of turn up the volume on these sensory signals and go, ah, there's no cigarette there. But then... 
um, you kind of lose that focus again momentarily and then you realize oh where's the fucking cigarette gone and right. then you're on the floor trying to find it again um and so it's it's like a dream in that your your brain you know in the dream state of course you're you're navigating a world that's disconnected from the environment your brain shuts off completely uh, sensory information from the environment now imagine that sort of halfway between the normal waking state in which you've got full access to sensory information and the dream state where you've got no access to sensory information. So imagine just turning the sensory information down. Hmm. Uh, that's the tropane state. And so you can still, not most of the time, you can navigate the world, but you're losing a lot of those clues, a lot of that information the brain relies upon to keep you sane, to keep its model um, uh, functioning, to keep its model mapped to actually what's going on in the environment. So any any strange models can become ingrained and become established within your overall phenomenal world, and they're not tested for, you know, it could be minutes, it could be longer, and it, and it, and it will depend upon the dose as well. Uh, and so, you know, in some cases, you can find yourself in completely fantastical worlds um, for a long period of time and, and you can act out as if you were there and have no idea of what you're actually doing in the environment which is could obviously be extremely dangerous particularly if you live on a, a high floor or something right um, that makes sense yeah no that makes uh good <laughs> sense and actually i'm uh i kind of have an idea now before i was just trying to because i've never experienced Datura or i mean is is cocaine tropane? I think it might have some. It's a. Tr it's tr it's related. I mean, it's. it's slightly yeah, I mean, I guess maybe. Yeah, back in the day, maybe something like that. But yeah, I've never experienced any of these Datura or, um, like you mentioned, Nightshade or any of those. So they're really they're yeah. they're pretty unusual. I know some people that have done it, but it's not that common. No, I think it's 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 really it's the 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 intrepid fringes of the psychedelic subculture that would be interested in it i mean it lasts a long time it's it's for most people it's not particularly worthwhile as a psychedelic as i say it's more of a delirium it's more likely that you will end up in a, a, a kind of a dreams a waking dream state than you would actually end up in kind of any interesting um, interesting other phenomenal uh, phenomenal reality. Uh, so yeah, who do we had? We had uh, Matthew Palomari on, and he was discussing how one of his friends was clearing out his garden, and he had all tons of deterrent he didn't know, and he was getting all the ju the juices from the roots on his hands, and supposedly he was having well, some pretty crazy experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously I mean, there's a lot of kind of case studies of people eating the berries of of, of deadly nightshade and making pies from them yeah um and and then being found by the police several hours later running around the house naked covered in purple vomit uh, you know, so. yeah it doesn't sound like it ends well for anybody on that uh, that front yeah yeah um yeah, nursery rhyme gone horribly wrong so before we wrap it up and jump to a patreon segment i do want to ask you about the extended stay stuff where it's at any new developments with the extended dmt is there I saw maybe an article where they say they were putting it on hold because of everything that's going on. But is there, um, is has there been any breakthroughs with that? Or uh, I wouldn't say breakthroughs. I think yeah. So that so the the who is it? Medicinal mindfulness. The the group out of Boulder, Colorado. I think yeah. They they put everything on hold because of of COVID. And they they obviously can't have the the big meetups and uh, with their the team that they're they're trying to put together. Right. to actually implement this so so that's on hold 
um, the Imperial team, I hear, I hear whispers that this, uh, they're, be, they're beginning the early stages of trying to, um, to use the, this infusion technology. What, the, what kind of experiments they are going to be doing, I don't think that's 100% clear, at least not to me yet, whether it will be for purely, um, I guess, sort of neuroscientific uh, experiments or you know neuroimaging kind of things where they put, you know, they're looking at brain activity in F fMRI or EEG or MEG or whatever, or whether they're actually looking they're going to be more interested in the actual phenomenology of the state and, and keeping someone in the DMT space to actually I mean that's obviously been my vision is that this would be used as a way of navigating and keeping someone within the space and hopefully stabilizing them within the space such that they can perform experiments to establish communication with any intelligences within this in the space uh, but i think uh, we're a bit of a way off before we re re reach that that stage now the the paper that i wrote with brick strassman um way back oh, about f almost five years now i think um that was a kind of preliminary proof of principle pharmacokinetic model uh, but i've been working with a, a team in uh, in Sweden, who's about to, I think, received a, uh, a a rough draft of a new paper. They've done a much more detailed analysis of Rick's original DMT blood data, and they've done a much more sophisticated um, model, pharmacokinetic model, mm. you know, performed by specialists, you know, specialist pharmacokineticists, which I am not, and neither is Rick. Um, uh, and, and so hopefully that will inform um, the actual research going into humans with using this extended state. You know, we, it's, not, it's not that simple. It's not simply a case of, of plugging someone into a DMT machine or you know, injecting them with a Where continuous do... infusion. Yeah. You have to, it has to be controlled to maintain a reasonable you know, concentration of DMT in the brain within a reasonable window. Yeah, where do they get the compounds that they use in these studies does somebody synthesize them because i know i mean yeah. on your thing you know you're a computational neurobiologist pharmacologist chemist you know obviously do they have the same people that are doing if they're in chemistry do they make the compounds or does somebody else separately make them or how does that work they would normally outsource so they would get so i think um so for example when rick strassman i mean rick strassman did all the the studies in the 90s but he got dave nichols the the, the great Dave Nichols at Purdue to actually synthesize. So his lab synthesized the DMT. Um, and yeah, I mean, generally the people that do the, the fMRI work won't be chemists, right. um, but they would, they would have a relationship with some organic chemistry lab that would synthesize and purify and assay. I mean, it's, it's not simply a case of, I mean, anyone can make DMT in the lab if you've got access to a organic chemistry lab, but to produce pharmaceutical grade DMT um, that you can, you can uh, assay properly and inject into humans for extended periods of time. You know, this has to be, you know, the, I guess um, this has to be 99.9% pure. Um, is it always something... injected or is it ever smoked? In some studies, I think um, people will be for that reason, basically. I mean, you, it's much safer uh, to give someone smoked DMT um, if you don't have the capability of producing this pharmaceutical grade than it is to inject it. So certainly people that are extracting 
from mimosa hostilis root bark in their kitchen shouldn't be shouldn't be injecting it. Um, they certainly shouldn't be injecting it into anybody else. I mean, you have to go through a, a proper process of chromatographic separation and purification and proper assaying of level of purity um, and properly prepared for injection, you know, formation of the, the correct salt and water soluble salt and then you know it's does it's, that it's, quality it's, it's, does that smell like plastic too even at its purest um medicinal form it the, the free base tends to have a a stronger smell um um but yeah these salts um, tend to be milder um but you i mean certainly when you're injecting for clinical studies you would it would be in a sealed vial with a certain a certain concentration and you would draw it out into the syringe um, and that will go straight into there. So no one would ever get their nose to it. Yeah. Since we've had you on last, we've had Rick uh, Strassman on, and we've nice. you know, obviously talked about some of these things. And yeah, I mean, when we started the podcast, it's like, you know, let's, there's a handful of people, and he was definitely one of them. And through him, we learned about you and, you know, uh, your work. Um, how do you communicate with other, you know, psychedelics or people in the psychedelic realm in science? You know, do you speak with you know, Rick regularly or other scientists? Is that something you do or is that something that happens or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I do occasionally, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm very much an individual. I, I tend to work best on my own. And, um, I'm, yeah, I, 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 I consult, I, I offer my advice to people. What I try and avoid doing is getting too, I don't, um, attach myself too strongly to any particular project mm-hmm. um yeah i just i'm a i'm an ideas man i'm that kind of guy mm-hmm. you know i'm the ideas man yeah that's and why I this is called visionary <laughs> psychedelic scientist or science you know that's that's yeah that's because yeah. i mean look i think you, we need more of that we had avi loban earlier talking about how you know his idea of like a muamua this interstellar object being possibly extraterrestrial origin we need more of those type of outside the box thinkers because science is kind of at a standstill, especially if you look at like physics and there's no unified theory and you have the quantum, you know, physicists and the, you know, classical physicists and they're just kind of at odds. Um, but within the psychedelic realm, it seems like there's some sort of synergy, you know, it seems like everybody's kind of on the same page, you know, like let's respect, you know, the indigenous stuff. Let's, but let's carve out this new space where we can learn about these and actually the mechanisms behind them and uh, how they interact and what we can do. Uh, Cause obviously there's a lot of people suffering out there with mental illness. So, um, but yeah, it yeah. seems to be like everybody's on the same page. You might get a, a couple of Scrooges here and there, but for the most part, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think so. And I, I try and, I try and uh, stay within both worlds or act as a mediator, if you like, between, uh, between those, between the, the very scientific world uh, and and those, as I said before, who are who are more on the fringes and try and say, can we find common ground mm. really uh, between those ways of thinking and, and and try and keep an open mind and realize that we know so very very little about what these you know what the DMT experience or what the salary experience really means. There is limited we can understand by by looking at brain activity. There's a lot we can learn from looking at brain activity, um, but. Uh, and looking at drug receptor interactions and that kind of thing, uh, but you know there there, is, there comes a time when we must confront the experience itself, and 
Uh, and that's what I try and do is not neglect the experience. You know, if you go back to the 1950s when um, I did a, an interview with um, Stephen Zara, who is who was the guy that first discovered DMT uh, as the active principle of of these indigenous um, hallucinogenic snuffs um, like cahoba, and he uh, when they first did their, their studies they would inject people with with dmt and they would kind of they would write the paper and they would just say you know hallucinations right. complex hallucinations and we, we we had some difficulty with, with with dave luke at greenwich university in london we had some difficulty in trying to get to the experiences of these people back in these um in the in these earliest eras because they simply didn't record them or they certainly didn't publish them and if they did record them those documents are long gone so you've got you've got this paper about this brand new psychedelic extremely powerful psychedelic molecule and you've got maybe two case you know brief snippets of, of two subjects uh, experiences right. and and then that's all you've got it's like ah you know they injected 30 or 40 people and if only they'd done a, a Rick Strassman. I mean, Rick Strassman was did the right thing in that he right. the experiences took center stage in his studies, uh, and and that's really important. I think is that when you're doing these studies, you don't just think about what are the change in, in brain activity. Um, it was a smart uh, play, actually, you know. Tell them you're going to do yeah, tri- yeah. trivial stuff and come out with the the hard data. Yeah, yeah, you have to be as boring as possible, um, I think. <laughs> when you're pitching um, it, right? And then you can come out with all... When you're pitching it. Yeah. 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 Uh, as he did. You got to play did. the game, baby. Uh, somebody wanted to ask if you were to try any of these new experiments, is there one that you would try personally or you think that that might have some sort of visionary experience effect? Um, which one of the new ones? Out of like any of the psychedelic experience. Like ex- assume that you're not, you know, a scientist administering these things. Assume that you're just... A participant is there a study that you thinks interesting or intrigues you that you would try if you weren't you know on the other end of things well i think for me the in terms of the, the kind of the phenomenology and if you want to experience something uh dramatic and astonishing then i think these kind of these dm the extended dmt state ex- experiments they're going to be the way to go mm. um you know with 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 psilocybin and LSD, it tends to be um, a bolus dose. So you, you're given the drug with a, a single injection or, or often just a, a capsule, uh, and then you wait for the effects. And so you're having really a normal um, psychedelic experience that you would that anyone can have, really. Uh, mm-hmm. If you can if you can source some magic mushrooms or grow some magic mushrooms, then you can have that experience. But um, but extended state DMT is a completely different ball different kettle of fish uh, so to speak uh, in that it's very difficult or impossible i think uh, or very difficult uh, for somebody who isn't doesn't have access to those kind of facilities to actually um i mean in the future it will be possible i think but at the moment you'd have to take part in one of these studies to actually have one of these right our hour long breakthrough dmt experiences whether i'd be up for it i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, if you're into that, if you if you really like to stay in the space, but um, I mean, there are things that people can do. I mean, there are people now. Again, it's all underground. But what about like have... uh, extended like psilocybin? And, and let me say this: I think that um, you know the experience psilocybin obviously lasts a long time, depending on how much you take 
you know, three to six hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, for somebody like me who has OCD, yeah, that might be a nice reset, allows the CBT therapy, you know, the therapy to kind of take hold a little bit better, that kind of stuff. But is there any evidence to show there's more neuroplasticity the longer these experiences go on? Because if that's the case, if you could stay in one of these states, maybe you could, you know, rewire things permanently or at least kind of give yourself a little bit of a blank slate. Um, I don't think it's really known. In terms of neuroplasticity, I don't know. I think what so the, the neuroplasticity effect seems to be something that occurs after it's not something that's going on so as much during the experience what you're happening during the experience is a is a is a loosening loosening up uh, kind of a plasticization if you like um of, of of the cortex and allowing the cortex to find healthier states uh you know if you're depressed and you're in, the, in a very kind of n- you have these very ingrained negative uh, patterns of activity, you know, which are expressed as negative thought patterns and uh, pessimism and all that kind of stuff. Um, psychedelics allow you to kind of dismantle those those patterns and right. allow more positive uh, and adaptive. I and think of them as like embedded uh, thought loops. I don't necessarily think of it as chemical uh, imbalances or uh, anything like well, that. Well, no, it's not a chemical imbalance, but yeah, these are so. You know, these patterns of thought are caused by or are correlated with ingrained patterns of cortical activity. You know, there is that relationship. And so when you shake up the cortex and allow it to explore new states, you're allowing uh, with the guidance of of the clinician, of a counselor uh, to actually find better ways of thinking it's much like malleable Mm -hmm. whereas you might take years of psychotherapy to try and try and break out of these old patterns and find new ones here you kind of um you've 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 plasticized the the cortex it's amazing i i and i think i think it's not just somebody who's asking about you know how rick rick kind of disagrees that these are a panacea of uh you know a cure-all in, in a way. Um, and I think that that's true to a certain extent from my own experience because I see a lot of people that take psychedelics that are on psychedelic formants that are, are forums that are still egomaniacs or assholes or whatever the case oh, yeah, may yeah. be. So I don't think that this is like a fixing, this is not like a silver bullet or just some sort of, you know, take one pill solution. I do think though, if you're a thinker, you know a lot about yourself. Maybe you meditate. Maybe you're very introspective. I think that that can these then can be super helpful because you kind of already have these tools to work with that. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's, you know it's all about what's your intention and what kind of guidance are you going to get during the trip. What are you aiming to do? If you're just aiming to find out the secrets of the universe or something, um, you might get some insights, but that's not necessarily going to disrupt. Um, if it's not direct, if you're not trying to direct the experience towards finding some deep-seated issues that you've got that's causing, you know, depression or anxiety or whatever, then that's not necessarily going to happen. It has to I, be guided. You plasticize the wow. brain and make it more fluid, but then you have to kind of mold it into the right shape, so to speak. I have found that uh, looking back on psychedelics, too, like like during like a psilocybin experience, that things come up that I would never have thought about, like growing up how, you know, I remember how I perceived these things and that helped me understand myself a little bit more that I would have never thought about. So, I mean, there's obviously something going on though, where you are connected to more of your own self or your brain 
where you can then kind of rework out, like you said, like get to some of these deeper issues. So it is is something I, you know, I don't think it is a cure all, but again, if you're a thinker and you understand yourself and maybe you know a lot about the disorder you have, I think these can be very, very powerful tools. Precisely. Yeah. We're agreed on that. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up here and then move on to our Patreon here. So uh, again, go check out um, Andrew's website. I have the link down below. Uh, you do. You said you're working on a new book. Do you want to maybe give us? Uh, do you have a title or a working title? Or so yeah. So the book is about. So in my in my last book, I focused on DMT, and this book is going to be really. I'm going to look at all classes of psychedelics. So the classic psychedelics, um, ketamine, mm. uh, and the uh, PCP that class, uh, okay. NMDA antagonist, the tropanes. Um, salvia uh, and bring them all together uh, and explain how they work in terms of the way that they affect I mean I just described right. this, uh, in this talk you know the way that these molecules affect your reality they, they affect your world your model of, of the world that you experience your phenomenal world uh, and so what we can do is, is think about um, kind of a world space, if you like, a, a space of all possible states of the, of the cortex, which is basically a, really, a, I guess, a, a space of all possible worlds. Mm. Uh, and, and think of psychedelics as offering ways to access different regions within that world space uh, by different mechanisms. Uh, but basically, ultimately, they're all unified by changing the the structure of your world. And so, 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 so the idea of the book will be to, to use to bring together all the psychedelics and talk about how, how, first of all, talk about how your brain constructs your normal waking phenomenal world, you know, what we call consensus world, and then talk about how uh, each of the different classes of psychedelics manipulate the brain from the receptor level upwards uh, and cause changes in the structure of, of neural activity and how that relates to the structure of your world and how that relates to kind of um where in this world space these psychedelic drugs take you and then how how we might even engineer molecules to access particular regions of this uh, this world space so in a sense uh, there will become a point in the future perhaps where you can you can use a particular type of molecule to to activate particular types of receptors in the brain uh, with a certain balance perhaps using drug combinations to actually access different uh, uh, different regions of, the, of this uh, overall world space. So it's, um, um, yeah, the, I'm kind of on the second draft now. Um, but as with my other book, I like to, I, I like to illustrate and design the whole thing myself. Yeah, so. I really like the illustrations awesome. on the first yeah. one. Yeah, um, yeah. If you have not, you know, bought or checked out Alien Information Theory, I highly recommend it. I bought the hardcover when it came out. It actually sold out pretty fast. I know some people were having a tough time. Uh, finding the hardcover um you can get it now yeah yeah um but what's so what do you think so instead of building alien worlds maybe it's going to exploring alien worlds now or (laughs) Uh, i have a working title in my head all right not not revealing it all right (laughs) right. (laughs) well uh when you get when you uh come out with it we'll definitely have you back on obviously The, the subtitle is psychedelics as tools for the discovery and exploration of new worlds so that gives you an, a flavor of what the, the book is about. All right. I like it. And I like Beautiful. the topics too. And uh, if you can explain it as well as you've explained some of these mechanisms here tonight, I think it'll I be, so. a, be a real bestseller for the psychedelic <laughs> community. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. If anybody's interested, we're going to record a Patreon. I'll probably upload it later tonight. 
And uh, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. And we look forward to your future research and your book. And uh, you're such a wealth of knowledge. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. All right. Peace, everybody. Peace. And uh, we love you. Stay safe out there.